Hi, everyone. Good to see you guys. All right. Um, let's go right into the sermon time. Uh, I'm going to read the passage for us and uh, pray, and then we'll go right into the time together. God is so good to us uh, as he gives us his word. So uh, let's go to the passage for today, which is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. This is God's word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying uh, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's the word of the Lord. Uh, let's bow our heads together and let's pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you in need of so much grace uh, from you, God. Uh, apart from you, we can do nothing. And this world uh, is empty uh, in that uh, we will run dry. But when we come to you, you are our good shepherd leading us through the green pastures. So may you give all of us here um, physically as well as through the live stream, that you would uh, restore our hearts, uh, bring us back to you, uh, bring back the purpose for our lives. Use me to be clear, uh, to deliver your precious word. Strengthen me, God, so I can glorify you and worship you and be joyful during this time. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for today's, ser uh, today's sermon uh, is Christ's Gift to the Church. And the three points to help you follow along are the gifts in triumph, the gifts in truth, and the gifts in love. So please follow with me. First, the gifts in triumph. Verse 7, Paul says this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Uh, grace, the word grace there, I think uh, it's a very prevalent word, obviously, in the, in the Bible. And uh, I think the meaning can be lost easily. But what it means is obviously the basic meaning of undeserved favor. But in, in this context, it's, it's good to remember that it refers to God's gracious gift, namely, especially the spiritual gift that we'll talk about, um, meaning the talent. Uh, that's another word to describe it. Uh, and then what he says, that it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. What that means is that Christ measure out uh, a specific gift for each believer. In other words, uh, you know, Christ sovereignly customized a unique gift for each person, each one of us uh, who belong to the body of Christ, the church, so that they can use the gift to uh, serve one another. And implication is that all of us are different. Uh, God, again, customized each one of us in different ways so we can serve the church in a variety of ways. And now, uh, jumping to, instead of jumping to explaining what these gifts are all about, Paul actually uh, pauses a little bit and he uh, spends the next few verses to explain or rather highlight the value of these gifts. So let's see what he says. Verses 8, uh, verses eight through uh, 10, it says this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Uh, as you can see from the, the indent in the text, Paul is loosely quoting a uh, Old Testament text, uh, which is actually from Psalm 68. Uh, psalm 68 is very interesting psalm. It's very majestic psalm, if you read in its entirety. Uh, the psalm is about the Lord Yahweh God, uh, defeating his enemies and ascending to his throne in Jerusalem, in Zion. And in his victory, we see the picture of his people enjoying the spoils of war after the battle. And they also receive power and strength uh, as gifts from God himself. So now, by quoting this text here, obviously Paul is identifying uh, this psalm to be a prophecy pointing to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So in verses 9, nine and 10, that's why he says this, uh, that, that the, the, the one he, who ascended, meaning Jesus who resurrected, is the one who had descended, meaning the one who came to earth. But not only that, the lower region, meaning um, Sheol, Hades, um, not hell, but uh, that Jesus died and went to the realm of the dead. So what Paul is saying is the, the, the Lord Yahweh, God, depicted in the psalm, you know, rising above the heavens and, you know, in, being enthroned and giving gifts, the spoils of war to his people. That is Jesus Christ. Paul is saying Jesus is the one who has fulfilled this prophecy, 
and he defeated his enemy, namely sin, death, and Satan for his people. And now his people uh, receive the spoils of war, namely the spiritual gifts, uh, power and strength uh, to uh, live victoriously. They're sharing the victory that Jesus accomplished for them you know, until he comes back to apply that victory in the world. That's, that's the spiritual gift. So spiritual gift is really a um, sign of the believer's victory in the world, in Christ, as well as a tool that they are to use to keep the church victorious uh, in the world until Jesus comes back. And that's the value of uh, the spiritual gifts that we receive from Christ. Uh, quick question for, for all of us. How many of you, by show of hands, have played the game uh, Settlers of Catan? Almost everybody. Okay. Well, I have a complicated history uh, with this game uh, because I'm, I, I don't like it. Uh, let me explain why. Uh, so I learned this game when I was in college. If I remember, all the people who were trying to teach me, uh, I don't think they were really interested in teaching me well. Uh, their interest was rather in winning the game. So they would teach me just bare minimum, and they would you know, end up using me as a pawn to win the games. So I hated it, hated it. You know, I, I'm playing the game to win, but I always lose. I'm like, why am I playing this? So that's why I stopped playing uh, for a while. But then several years ago, I got to play again. But this time, I got a good teacher. He's a good guy who seemed to be really interested in actually teaching me well. And he ended up um, you know, uh, having me pair up with him. So we teamed up for the game, and, uh, and he patiently walked me through uh, you know, all the essential rules as well as the different strategies. And I just followed his instructions, you know, advices, and, you know, and whenever I couldn't do anything, he just like, did it for me, and you know, all in all. And long story short, I won. I mean, we won, but I won, and that was great. And I shared this uh, because um, you know, he, the, the guy that taught me, you know, he was a really good player. You know, he uh, obviously could have won the game by himself. And, um, you know, he, I think looking back, he just was probably like one of the best players um, that I ever played with. Uh, but he included me on, on his team because he desired me to learn the game, learn the joy of the game. And uh, he also wanted to uh, help me uh, taste the victory uh, somehow. And, and that's exactly uh, what's happening in the passage. Uh, you see, you know, Jesus, again, he won the war already. He uh, defeated Satan, sin, and death decisively on the cross because he died, you know, for the sinners, and now Satan cannot threaten us. That's, that's what Hebrews 2 says, that you know, no longer there's fear of death. So Satan cannot do anything. So he already won the war. And, and now, um, you know, 
unlike Jesus, people of the world, you know, they are not interested in you know giving us pleasure. You know, it's a dog it dog world. So you know they would use us and they would use our talents for their benefit, but not Christ. You know, he wants us to be part of his team, his game, so to speak, so that we can have a part in his victory. Again, without us, any of us, he can win. He already won, but he includes us in that process so that you know, we can uh, taste the victory. And that's the purpose of spiritual gifts. Jesus wants us to be part of, part of you know, his mission to redeem the world and expanding his kingdom. And what that means is that you know, this spiritual gift, using our gifts to serve the church, uh, it's an investment, good investment, because the victory is guaranteed. And also, it has eternal value because we're working hard and serving the church for um, you know, the, the eternal life and the, the victory that's to come. And here's my encouragement then. And please don't hear me say that you know, I'm like guilt-tripping you in, in any way to serve the church in any way. But rather, according to Romans 12, 6-8, which says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What Paul is saying in, in this letter is that you, know, you don't have to have a title. You could, but you don't have to have a title to serve the church. It's all about you belonging to the church and building relationships and you out of love for people around you you are trying to bless other people with a gift that only you have, what others don't have. And as you do that, um, you get to be part of Christ's victory, you see, because you're using the gifts to further God's kingdom and being part of um, you know, Christ's team. And it has an eternal value, and you can have joy as you do that. And, of course, there's a value in using your talent in, outside of the church, too, but church is special. The body of Christ. That's why he recommends, he wants us to be part of his team. So the gifts in triumph. That's the value of spiritual gifts. Now, verses 11 through 14 uh, is the next point, uh, which is named the gifts in truth. So now, Paul goes on to highlight particular gifts in the church that God has given to us. And I believe he picked out these gifts because they're crucial for the well-being of the church. So please follow with me. Verses, uh, verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Uh, let me just try to define these offices really quick for us. Uh, the apostles and prophets, we saw back in chapter 2, 20, that these were the foundational offices, meaning God used these specific offices, apostles and prophets, 
uh, for the purpose of you know, uh, initiating the church in the first century. What that means is I believe uh, they, are, they have seed. There's no more apostles than prophets, so to speak. Uh, but the other three are still active. You know, evangelists, you can just think of uh, missionaries because they are the ones that proclaim the gospel uh, to the non-believers. And the shepherds and teachers uh, basically refer to elders you know, who govern, uh, care for people, and teach. And, and that's why um, you know, the PCA has ruling elders and shepherds and uh, teaching elders, you know, teachers. So that's, the, that's what the offices are for. That's, that's, those are the gifts that God has um, given us that Paul is uh, highlighting here. But I want you to notice one thing. There's one common denominator among these gifts, among these offices in the church. That is the word of God. That's the common denominator of, between these five gifts. Meaning, you know, the apostles and prophets God used them, again, to establish the church in, in, the, in the first century. But essentially, God used them to write New Testament. Um, you know, for example, you know, uh, Apostle Peter was friends with uh, Mark, John Mark, so he wrote the Gospel of Mark, and so forth. So apostles and prophets, they wrote the Bible. They closed the canon for us. And God is using now evangelists to, you know, proclaim the gospel. And he's also using shepherds and teachers to communicate the gospel to the local church. In other words, Paul is highlighting the most important gift of all to the church, which is the word of God, the Bible that we have in our hands. And indeed, this is a very important gift for these following reasons. So Paul says in verse 12 and 13, uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, Paul using a lot of words here, but what he means is pretty simple. What he means is that God gave these word-based gifts to the church so that Every member of the church would grow mature, you know, with Christ, of course, as the ultimate role model. That's why uh, the Christ is listed as, um, you know, listed at the very end as a fullness of Christ, a stature, a fullness of Christ. He's the measure of our growth. He's a role model. So in this regard, word of God then is like food for all of us and for our church. You know, without this food, we cannot grow. You know, church will not be built up. Individual believers cannot grow without the word of God. And, and because it's so important for your growth, that's why I believe Paul is immediately turning to the warning of what happens if you lack this food of word of God. So verse 14, he says, so that God gave us these word-based offices so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul is saying that you know, Satan, although he's defeated on the cross, is still out there you know, trying to destroy the church 
furiously right now because he knows that his time is short. And to be sure, uh, you know, when, when I said we have victory in Christ, that means the church universal will never fail. The universal church will always remain and will be triumphant. However, in Revelation 23, we see that local churches can be destroyed. Local churches can be taken away if they lose God's calling. So Satan is out there to slip in false teachings and deceits into local, local congregation like CLC so that there will be division, so that there will be contamination of people's minds and the church gets destroyed. And therefore, Paul is saying, in order to withstand this real assault from Satan, the church must uphold the Bible as a standard and that our minds have to know the Bible. We have to know Christ. Without that, there's no hope. We will be, just like the imagery here says, we will be like a child being tossed you know, to and fro and will be destroyed. And that's a real sober warning. The Bible is the truth that we cannot live without. And now at this point, let me ask you a question that may cause some tension here. The question is, do you believe that there is an absolute truth? Do you believe there is absolute truth in the world? I'm talking about the truth that can tell us, that can judge whether a belief or a lifestyle can be right or wrong. In today's passage, there seems to be that you know, presupposition that there seems to be that assumption that the Bible is the absolute truth. Otherwise, we cannot tell whether something is a false teaching. Paul is saying the Bible is the truth, and what whatever contradicts the Bible is false teaching. So again, the question still stands: Do you believe that there is objective, universal truth that can discern? all the other truth claims to be right or wrong. Uh, there's a song called uh, The Voice Within. If you go to the next slide. Um, how many know this song? All right. all right. So this came out when I was in high school. I don't know how you guys know this song, uh, but, uh, but it's a very good song. I really... Um, appreciate this song musically and I think the you know uh, Christian Aguilera does an awesome job uh, singing this song but here's a song's uh, message I, I wrote that down there on, on, the, on the screen here's a chorus of the song it says this when there's no one else look inside yourself like your oldest friend just trust the voice within then you'll find the strength They'll guide your way. You'll learn to begin to trust the voice within. You know, I picked this song just because the lyrics are so overt about the, the philosophy behind uh, this message. Um, that, you know, you find your truth 
your own truth within yourself, not outside of yourself. But this message is all over uh, our, in our culture. And as far as I've seen, the most recent Disney movies all have this message, that you find your truth within yourself. So therefore, in this climate then, if anybody, if somebody claims that there is an absolute truth that you must abide by, you will likely be shunned. But may I challenge that logically here? Uh, you know, the underlying worldview behind the message of the culture that you find your truth in, within yourself uh, is that it's a tolerance, that you must be tolerant towards all other views out there. And, you know, if, if somebody discovers their own truth, then you've got to respect it and let them, you know, appreciate it and live by it. Don't, don't judge them. Don't judge their choice. Tolerance. But the irony I find is this, that the people who say uh, these things are actually not tolerant uh, towards certain views, namely the, the claims that say there is such a thing as absolute truth. Meaning they have to be intolerant towards that specific claim. What that means is no matter how tolerant you want to be, everyone has to have a absolute truth for yourself, a moral standard that you cannot let others violate. So therefore, when a tolerant person uh, calls someone bigoted you know, because they embrace certain moral standards, that person is no longer tolerant. You see the irony there? And also, if truth is found in you know, within each person, you know, logically and also historically, uh, namely especially you know Stalin and the Russian communism, uh, various atrocities can happen because some people can come out and you know do certain things and claim that that's their truth at the cost of other people's lives and not just convenience. So we see over and over that there is a need for a objectivity for society, objective moral standard. And the argument is, what if, what if God of Christianity is true, that he, he, he exists, and that he set a moral standard that reflects his character? What if? And again, I'm creating tension here. And the reason is, without that tension, we may not really understand what Paul is saying in this passage. We may just gloss it over saying, oh, of course, you know, we got to follow the Bible. But what does it really mean? Does it really challenge our assumptions you know, in our lives? Does it really make us feel uncomfortable as it should? And, and, and now I'm really encouraging us then to respond with that in mind. And let me, just follow with me. I know I'm spending a lot of time here, but I think it's important. Let me give you uh, two examples from the Bible of the people who responded the truth, uh, the truth claims of the Bible in radically different ways. 
and perhaps that can help us see where we might fit in as we try to respond to the truth. Two people. First person is Pilate, the Roman governor who crucified Jesus. I'm going to read from John uh, 18, just to kind of uh, draw a picture here. It says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and was, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? The Roman culture, if you're familiar, it was a very polytheistic culture uh, where you know, people expected people to be tolerant towards all religions. And what's interesting is that Romans called the Jews and Christians atheists because they were shocked by how they only believe in one God. So Pilate is operating from you know, the, the notion of finding truth within his own culture and within his own religion, not an objective one. That's why he's perplexed when Jesus said, you know, this is truth. He goes, what is truth? And then he goes on, and he makes a, makes a decision which is morally ambiguous. Namely, he just goes along with the crowd uh, giving permission to kill Jesus. There's no standard because he doesn't know the truth. The second person I want you to see is King Josiah from um, the kingdom of Judah. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 11 to 13. It says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, the Bible, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people, for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Let me remind you here, he's a king, meaning he can make up his own law to do whatever he wants. But apparently, he looked to the law of the Lord as the law, the objective law, the absolute truth that he should abide by. And he really believed it to the point that he's freaking out when he heard the word of the Lord. He is tearing his clothes, expressing his anguish, and he's you know, scared of the impending judgment. And the next chapter after this chapter, we see Josiah doing a nationwide reform to come back to the Lord because he believed it. He believed that this is the absolute truth without which he's doomed. So again, the question is, between these examples perhaps, where do we find ourselves? And the Paul is saying, if there is to be any spiritual progress, if, for, if there is to be any uh, growth in the church, we have to make a decision about the word of God, whether it's true or relative. 
And again, I know this can be a tension, but and, and I know in this all of us in this room are coming from different you know backgrounds and journeys and in, in relation to God, in, in, in relation to the Bible. I know it, and I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that we can be you know eclectic group of people appreciating different journeys that we have in this room. But my plea is that that you make the choice in your life. That if you're joining us, especially you know, as someone that's seeking Christianity, whether it's true or not, we welcome you and that you investigate this Bible to make it yours, to make a choice. And for those of us who have been following Christ for a while, we have to see ourselves, we have to examine ourselves, whether we act like Josiah or more like Pilate. Do we really believe the Bible to be true? Guiding principle, life to abide by. The Bible is a gift in truth. The third point, the gifts in love. Verses 15 and 16, it says this. Rather, you know, instead of being tossed back and forth, being shaken in your faith. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom all, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here Paul is saying, just reiterating the fact that as the head of the body, Christ has gifted, nourished every member of this body, body of Christ, namely the church. And with the spiritual gifts, each member, they are to use it to you know, serve one another and to build uh, this church up. That's, that's what he's saying. But then he adds one more element, as you might have noticed. This word is repeated twice. The word is love. What Paul is saying is, especially he starts with the speaking truth in love, meaning we just talked about truth. He's saying, when you speak the truth, you should, as he just argued, you do it in love. And admittedly, uh, you know, personal reason, like when I said, you know, Christians can be shunned uh, in, in the society, but perhaps the reason is not because they hold up the absolute truth you know, as, a, as love for God. But perhaps it's because a lot of Christians, admittedly, you know, use the, the truth claim for their own benefit. They, they weaponize the truth to, you know, condemn others, judge others, and abuse others even. And the old Phariseeism is alive in that case. To that Paul is saying, you speak the truth, but do it in love. Otherwise, you are doing wrong. And then from there, uh, when he also repeats the, the, the word love at the end, he's talking about how when we serve one another, there has to be love as well. We cannot just be um, doing our own thing and use our gifts um, just for our fulfillment, but for the benefit of others. That's what it means to be doing it in love. And therefore, we uphold the truth on the one hand, but we do it in love on the other. There has to be 
a balance, there has to be uh, the root of love in everything you do. I think uh, at this point, uh, we need to kind of see how this plays out, right? I, I think it's pretty conceptual how we have to speak the truth in love. But of course, no one does this perfectly except you know, Jesus himself. Uh, so if you go to John 4, uh, the story of Samaritan woman, I think there are a lot of things to learn there because that's where Jesus talks to this um, you know, sinful woman uh, in the society uh, who was an outcast um, and there's unfortunate you know, gender inequality where uh, the, the Jew man, Jewish man could not talk to the Samaritan woman, things like that. But we see these lessons here. I just listed what I saw in the story. That in love, Jesus reaches out to this outcast when everybody else is like, oh no, I'm not going to do that. And he also values her as a human being made in the image of God. He didn't define her by her sins or mistakes or, or even her social status. And he's very patient in the story with her. You know, he asks her, uh, or she asks him a lot of questions, a lot of uh, kind of random questions too in the story, but, you know, Jesus answers every single question very patiently. But then uh, he also reveals her sin very gently. He asked questions instead of saying, you are sinning. He said, you know, can you bring your husband? And I also found it very moving that Jesus never talked about this with anybody else. When disciples came back to the scene, you know, he never talked about her. Why? You never want to shame other people and share their secret sins. Jesus knew that. Jesus loved her that way, protected her. And lastly, I see in the story that Jesus never tried to control her. Like, hey, change, you know, do this, do that. No, he just let her go. And it was the spirit that moved her heart. Love. That's a picture of love. What it means to speak truth in love. So let me challenge us. Um, I mean, to me, right away, um, I think we have to admit that this is a fine art, right? Uh, how do you speak truth and do it in love? Uh, because I think, you know, I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but I'm sure maybe half of us could be considered truth people. Your strength is you like to be blunt and you like to help other people to, you know, achieve their potential. Uh, but maybe on the other hand, you find yourself um, maybe frequently hurting other people's feelings because you're too blunt. You're more, more of a truth person. But maybe the other of us, uh, could be more considered to be grace people. So you serve other people really well by being kind and gentle and you know, make, making sure that people feel cared for and uh, understood. But on the other hand, perhaps you shy away from telling the truth um, you know, for fear of rejection and you know, stress or whatever. Only Jesus, therefore, uh, is called in John 1, full of grace and truth. What that means is we must rely on the Holy Spirit whenever situations come. Um, 
Like, what does it mean to speak truth in what situation? That takes wisdom. What does it mean to show grace? That takes wisdom. And, and, but most importantly, this all comes from, like we saw last week, our own walk with, the, walk with God. If we receive God's love, if we understand God's love, then naturally we can love other people in the right way by telling the truth or withholding it for the right timing. And let me uh, close with this story, uh, this personal story. Um, so there's one occasion, um, I mean, you know, I like to, as a pastor, you know, I, you know, love ministering to people, and um, uh, there's this one occasion where uh, me and another person, um, you know, we uh, started meeting up um, almost like on a weekly basis so I can help them, uh, especially because, you know, he was a new believer at the time, and uh, um, I really wanted to help him out, so we, you know, met uh, pretty frequently, you know, like, for hours at, at times. Uh, but then, uh, you know, in the middle of that season, uh, this, this friend of mine, you know, he started failing and falling into some serious sins uh, that was jeopardizing, jeopardizing his own faith, jeopardizing his own you know, walk with God, and even hurting other people. And, and so I, I had to confront him. I had to sit down with him and, you know, tell him that, is being wrong, and and from there on ensued um, a very painful and um, exhausting conversations and discussions uh, for I don't know how many weeks. Whenever we met up, you know, we had we were debating like you know who's right and who's right, you know who's wrong, and uh, it was very exhausting uh, to say the least, and you know it was emotionally hard too. But fast forward, um, this friend of mine. Uh, he had to leave uh, because of his job, and uh, at our last conversation, um, you know, he just started crying, and he, through his tears, he said he really appreciated the fact that uh, I never gave up on him, uh, even though uh, we had those rough patches and um, you know, tough conversations. Uh, he was really genuinely thankful that I never gave up on him. And I think to me, that was one of those times where I really had to etch that experience to um, my pastoral years um, because I think God really spoke to me and uh, taught me that um, I should never, ever give up on people. No matter how bleak the situation may seem, uh, I should never give up on anybody because God can change them but more so because God will never give up on me. Um, if Jesus um, found the Samaritan woman you know, after five husbands you know, and millions of other failures, he never gave up. He sought her. He didn't have to go to Samaria, but he found her and uh, redeemed her. Uh, God will never give up on us. You know, he'll always seek after us. And if we experience that, if we experience that love, that's how we replicate that love to other people. How do we speak 
the truth in love? If we experience it with God, he will tell us the truth, but he always shows us, showers us with grace after grace, grace upon grace, John 1. So let us become a healthy church, uh, covenant life church. And Paul is saying we do that when we know this grace, but we know the truth of God's word, we're committed to it, and we speak that truth with Christ-like love. That's the only way we grow, individually and corporately as a church. Let's pray together. We'll in prayer soon, uh, but uh, let's just rest in that truth that we just sang. wrath of God is satisfied. No guilt in life, no fear in death. The power that we have through the Holy Spirit. May, may this truth from the Bible saturate our hearts. Even right now, just filling our hearts with this truth. So it will change, so we will be grounded in his hope. Can we do that? Just pray of our own hearts and our, our first breaths. Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your unending grace. Uh, we thank you that uh, right at the moment when we fail, we can come before you and receive your grace. Uh, it's unending, and uh, uh, as you are victorious, we look forward to sharing fully of your victory in heaven. Until then, Please give us grace uh, every single step and help us to steward our spiritual gifts well to serve your people and uh, be a good witness in our respective callings. Um, but thank you for your um, unending care and attention um, and uh, focus on us, uh, gifting us all these things. Power, strength, your presence. Thank you, Lord. Help us, God.